to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we will be talking about the 1973 Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. This is a complicated and delicate topic, and there is so much to discuss. We decided to break up the conversation into two parts. So today will be part one, and next time we will resume with part two. In preparation, my reading partner and I read a bit about the case, and then we read the actual case, which we found online on Google Scholar. Neither of us had ever read the original text before, and we both found it to be so much more readable and accessible than we expected. We felt like we could feel the judges wrestling with every angle of the issue, taking it very seriously and so wanting to do the right thing. I really found it worth reading, and I'm really excited to discuss it today. Uh, But before we dig into this essential text and talk about its implications for women, I'd like to introduce my reading partner, Lindsay McPhee Hickok. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Amy. Lindsay is my sister. Um, She's actually the third sister to be a guest on the podcast, so I feel like we should just introduce the whole McPhee family. Um, There are five kids in our family. I'm the oldest. And then Lindsay, who is here today, comes next. Then comes our only brother, Scott, and his wife, Rachel, whom we consider to be a sister also. Then next is Courtney, who did the episodes on the Seneca Falls Convention speeches and Margaret Sanger's The Morality of Birth Control. And then Whitney is the youngest, and Whitney did the episode right before this one on Title IX. Um, All of us are extremely close, and we're the best of friends, and I adore and admire them each for different reasons. I would say Scott is awesome because he frequently makes me laugh so hard that I cry. (laughs) And Rachel seems to have all the craziest things happen to her, and she is the absolute best storyteller, and she also often makes us laugh so hard we cry. Courtney is a trailblazer in our family by being the first of the siblings to get a master's degree, among other things. And I admire Whitney for her incredible resilience, again, among many other wonderful traits. And Lindsay, one of the many things I love about you is the passion with which you care for women and babies at your job as a labor and delivery nurse. And having had four kids myself, I wish every laboring woman in the world had a coach and a defender and a nurturer as fiercely loving and, and empowering as you are at your job. Um, so Linz, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what kinds of life experiences and points of view you bring to today's conversation? Sure. Um, as Amy said, I'm the second child in our family. Uh, we grew up in Colorado, but I live in Utah now with my husband and three children. Uh, we love to hike and bike and look for um, outdoor animals and basically just be together and play uh, as much as we can outdoors. I graduated from BYU with a nursing degree, um, I guess about 13 years ago. And besides a short little stint in same-day surgery, I've spent my whole career in labor and delivery. That's where my heart is. Um, Many of my most intense life experiences Um, have come from the delivery room or from my faith. I was raised in a very devout Christian home. My parents raised us in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that faith has played a huge part in who I am and how I view the world. I was taught from the time I was born that God cared about the choices I made and that all life was sacred and beautiful. And I think that was what guided me to become a nurse particularly a labor nurse, um, 
because I get to see the beauty of life and I get to see um, the magic when a baby is born. Um, I've had such a such a blessing in my career. I've been able to walk with women as they've labored and birthed their little babies. And I love seeing the strength of women. I've seen heroines in the delivery room and it takes my breath away every single time. In fact, talking about it right now makes me just get a little choked up because women are powerhouses and they, when they have these little tiny babies, I think they get a glimpse into who they really are. Um, anyway, in my addition, in addition to my Mormon roots, I also have Scottish roots and that feels very much a part of who I am. One of my core values is freedom of choice. So if you've seen Braveheart, you can imagine William Wallace blazing across the green field yelling, freedom! <laughs> we grew up hearing stories that we were Scottish. We had Scottish pride. Um, and we loved our freedom and our ability to choose. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to my Scottish roots, I've got the Mormon pioneers walking barefoot across icy plains suffering sickness and grief for their freedom, their religious freedom. And so some of my core values that I bring to this conversation are a respect and a, a love for life and the magic of, of human, you know, human life. And then also a deep respect and desire to protect freedom. Wow. That was a powerful introduction. Lindsay. Thank you. Um, one other thing that I like to ask reading partners is what interested them in the project. So if you could just talk about a little bit about why you agreed to do this with me. Mm, that's a great question. Um, so the name of your podcast is Breaking Down Patriarchy. And I think patri patriarchy, see, I'm learning to even say it, is something that as I'm getting older, I am looking at more. Um, have you heard the commencement speech given by David Foster Wallace? Mm -hmm. um, it's entitled, This is Water. Yeah, I love that speech. I do too. I really do. And it starts with, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? <laughs> and the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? <laughs> And this resonates so well with me. I've been swimming in patriarchy from the day I was born, but for a long time, I didn't have a name for it. Uh, for years, I accepted the patriarchy of the scriptures and of my church. I accepted that men were the heads of the households and other patriarchal ideas. And when they rubbed me the wrong way, I'd ask questions about them like, why are men always in charge? And they'd say, oh, well, because someone has to be in charge. Or I might say, why aren't there more women leading? Mm -hmm. And sometimes the women even would write, say back, uh, leading is a burden. Aren't you so glad that you don't have to have that burden? And the older I've gotten, the more frustrated I've become with these kinds of answers, I think, because I'm seeing that it's not just patriarchy doesn't just set us up so that they're making small decisions, but also huge ones that affect our life just in the day-to-day. -day. Um, and they affect not just my life, but all women. If half the world population is female, then half of all our leadership teams should be female. I think our leadership should reflect our population. So patriarchy is problematic, and I am interested in breaking it down. <laughs> so for this episode especially, I take particular interest in Roe versus Wade because it brings out those core beliefs of, my, of the sanctity of life 
and the importance of free choice, it brings those right into the spotlight. And because I'm so deeply devoted to women's health care and how childbirth affects us all, um, I wanted to engage in this way in this episode. I'm so grateful that you are going to be the one to talk about this with me because you are so thoughtful about it, even just in those answers to my questions. I'm just so impressed. And I'm I'm so impressed with the precision and the care that you take in your thinking and also just in your, your fear, like I said before, your fiercely loving heart and um, your passion for, for women and babies and for healthcare. So I just am so grateful that you're here with me to discuss this today. Um, so as you kind of said, you've been working in labor and delivery for more than a decade and you, we kind of joke in our family, we were raised to be very, very proper. <laughs> and <laughs> so that we have like euphemisms for every part of the body. But because you're a nurse, you like so freely talk about women's bodies. That's one thing that is really, <laughs> really fun. Like you make me uncomfortable. And then we all, we both laugh because we both know that I shouldn't be uncomfortable. <laughs> that stuff. I still feel like a little kid. Well, you're not alone. Many, many people feel rather uncomfortable talking about those things, don't it's, you think? It's all how you're raised, right? Yeah, but I you suppose. were raised along with me, but because you work with women's bodies, it's just like so matter of fact, and I absolutely love it. But in any case, what I was starting to say is that you've engaged with women's reproductive health and their reproductive choices for years and years and years. So you bring a lot of wisdom to this topic. For me, this topic is really new. And actually, you and I have not talked about abortion rights. I don't think we had ever really talked about it until we had this kind of like tentative conversation very recently when we, when I asked you if you would do this episode for me. And anyway, I just wanted to kind of talk about a little bit what I bring to this conversation because it's such a new topic to me. The first time I dedicated time to studying and thinking about abortion and abortion rights was in a class called International Women's Health and Human Rights at Stanford in 2019. And I've referenced that class before, and I will probably keep referencing it because it made such a huge impact on my life. Um, in that class, we had to do a semester-long research project where we were asked to choose any topic we wanted having to do with women's health. And then we had to post about a different aspect of that topic every week on a blog for our classmates to read and comment on. Um, conversations on abortion had always made me uncomfortable because there was so much contention around that topic. And because my religion um, and my experiences as a mother had made my feelings really, really tender about it. So it's contentious in politics. It's very tender. And like, I felt like kind of raw <laughs> about it on a personal level. And for whatever reason, I don't really know why, but when I was in the class, I thought, you know, I've made my choice, my, my po political choice, I guess, and my my approach to this topic has not ever really been examined. I've always just gone along with the way um, my religion taught me and my feelings about it, but I've never done any reading of any data about the topic. And so for whatever reason, I decided to lean into my discomfort and um, for the first time attempt to understand why a lot of people that I respected supported women's rights to an abortion. So I just want to offer a few takeaways that I um, gleaned from doing that, that research project, which lasted the whole quarter. The first one is this. I dislike the terms pro-life and pro-choice. 
I think they're more often than not divisive. I think sometimes they're disingenuous and they often shut down conversation instead of promoting understanding of one side for the other. I think implied in in pro-life is that the other side is anti-life or pro-death. And that is not fair or accurate because many women who hold this view would personally not choose abortion as an option. And in general, people who hold that view tend to be very concerned about the quality of life for mothers and children, very concerned with life. And they support programs to lift people out of poverty. They support healthy, flourishing lives for people already on this planet, many of whom are dealing with unimaginably difficult circumstances. So I don't feel it's fair to imply that the other side is not pro-life. And then implied in pro-choice is that the other side is anti-choice. And that's not fair either. I think many people who hold this view emphasize that people do have the choice of whether or not to have sex. Most abortions are not cases of rape or incest or threats to the mother's life. So they emphasize that most of the time a woman has choice, but it's about whether or not to have sex. And she has a choice of whether to use birth control. And they say, rather than using your power of choice so late, um, once you're already pregnant, then a woman should use her power of choice to avoid the situation entirely. It's just not an accurate assessment. So Um, Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people who don't fully identify as pro-life, meaning, you know, anti-choice. And I don't think that there are a lot of people that would say, yeah, I'm pro-choice, which means I don't care about life. Uh, Looking at Roe versus Wade was really interesting because um, I met Jane Roe for the first time. Um, she also struggled to identify fully with one side of this black and white um, divide as well. Jane Rowe's real name was Norma McCorby. And though she obviously wanted an abortion, she didn't envision becoming the poster child of the cause. Uh, when she sought help to obtain an abortion, she said, my attorney saw these cuts on my wrists, my swollen eyes from crying, the miserable person sitting across from her, and she knew she had a patsy. She was used by the pro-choice side, and the court case took so long that she just waited and waited and never obtained the abortion she had wanted. But then later in life, she was baptized as a born-again Christian and fought fiercely against abortion rights. But then on her deathbed, she switched again, confessing that she had been paid off by the pro-life advocates and did believe in women having a choice. In the end, she was used by both sides and felt like she didn't fully identify with either Yeah, that's so interesting and so sad. (laughs) I feel like for you and I, I feel like because at least now I've done research and and you already have had, you know, done research and acquired so much life experience. And that's kind of why we have nuanced thinking about the issue and we don't feel comfortable with those black and white labels. In her case, I think sadly, she was in a different position where she had neither education nor much life experience. The sense that I got from her story is that she didn't really understand the issues, to be honest. And she was just used kind of as a pawn by both sides of this political divide. Is that the sense you got to? I do. And I also just think that um, I actually think most people, if you sat down and had a discussion with them, fall somewhere in the middle as far as I value choice and I value life and these um, black and white um titles or camps don't really capture 
them or me. Yeah. And so I think Norma's a really great example of feeling kind of conflicted about it. Yeah. But not because she had done research and become educated. She just kind of, I feel like her lack of education about it made her vulnerable to being used. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And so I do, I mean, especially after having done this project, this one right now with you and also in my class, I just think, why did I wait so long to actually just say, what, what am I afraid of? I'm just going to read about what is actually happening in our world. What are the actual arguments? What, what is the actual data? And so I think that education makes us so that we are not vulnerable to just whoever is the most persuasive speaker at whatever rally we go to mm-hmm. or whatever super persuasive editorial we read that we're already inclined to believe because maybe that's how we grew up. I just think education makes us so we're not vulnerable to to being swayed again to a different camp. And instead we can say, well, I see the wisdom in this. I see the wisdom in that. And um, it's just, especially this topic is just so complicated and, and tricky, mm-hmm. but that's why we're doing this today. So mm-hmm. we're going to unpack this. And that's also why it'll take two episodes <laughs> to get through, but I learned so much. Anyway, I want to share a couple more points that I learned from the class quickly. Um, one thing that just kept hitting me, and this is should be very simple and basic, but it just kept hitting me as I read women's stories that no woman thinks like from a really great place in her life, you know what I want? I want an unwanted pregnancy that ends in an abortion. No one wants that, right? The vast majority of abortions, there are some abortions that are necessary to save the mother's life, but the vast majority of them come from women confronting an unwanted pregnancy. And by definition, no one wants an unwanted pregnancy, right? Right. I mean, so to me, I started asking a different question. And that was how can we avoid unwanted pregnancy? And what I looked at was the things that are most effective are better sex education, starting at a really young age for kids egalitarian attitudes from the time children are little. So boys would never consider putting a girl at risk. Um, As part of that, boys' understanding of their part in causing pregnancy. And we've mentioned this article before, but Design Mom's Twitter thread on abortion is really a must read, um, where she talks about irresponsible ejaculations. And then access to birth control. When women have all of those things and, and men have all of those things, the, the abortion rates go way down because there are way fewer unwanted pregnancies in the first place. And that's the goal. So that's that I guess is my next point is that on a societal level, on an individual level, no woman wants to be in a position where she needs an abortion. And on an, on a societal level, nobody wants high abortion rates. Nobody, not Republicans, not Democrats, not men, not women. Even if you're looking at it from a fiscal point of view, abortions are expensive for the individual or for the government. There's no win in having lots of abortions. Nobody wants that. So I just, again, I started thinking like, let's follow the data. Which countries in the world have the lowest abortion rates and what are they doing? Why can't we agree on those measures since everyone has the same goal of fewer abortions? And then look at the countries that have the highest abortion rates. What are they doing? Why can't we just agree to avoid those measures? So I I just think we should be looking at the data honestly and doing what works. Um, And then the last thing from my class was one thing that I noticed right away as we started talking at abortion, 
about abortion is that my fellow students had really different reactions about like what, um, where this conversation belonged, I guess. And one student said, oh, this is a moral philosophical issue that that student had a a degree from Harvard Divinity School. And so he said, this is a moral and philosophical issue. And another one who was a doctor said, I actually, I see this as a public health issue. And then another one said, no, this is a women's rights issue. And one of my biggest aha moments was actually realizing that it's all of those things. But then um, I was looking at photographs of the people who were telling their stories of why they felt that they needed abortions. And of course, obviously, they were 100% women. And then on the other hand, there's that famous photo of Trump and Pence and that huge room full of men in suits. Then um, they were like signing something into law that, that affected abortion rights. And then I looked at this picture of like another big player in restricting abortion rights is the Catholic Church. And I looked at a, a photo of Catholic Church leadership and it was literally a gigantic crowd of men, 100% men. And then I looked at a photo of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is another major player, all men. And then I looked at the Mormon Church, who also has really strong opinions and very public you know, statements about abortion rights, 100% men. And I looked at this photo from Pakistan of a big group of imams who were speaking about abortion, 100% men. So the, the people who were impacted were 100% women, and the people who were making the rules about it were 100% men. And that was huge for me. And while many women are pro-life, would identify as pro-life, and many men would, would identify as pro-choice, at the level of determining the rules the rules determining women's reproductive rights, it's all men. And so that's why we're including Roe versus Wade on a podcast about patriarchy, because at least um, on some level, this is about men controlling women, men, Absolutely. Con- men controlling women's bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So I came to this. For me, abortion is a big deal. It should be taken seriously on a societal level. It should be taken seriously on a personal level. It is a hard, hard choice to make with so many different circumstances factoring in for each woman. So who is qualified to make that difficult choice? Who can be trusted to make that difficult choice? I love how Pete Buttigieg has talked about abortion. One of the things that he said was, I think the dialogue has gotten so caught up on when you draw the line that we've gotten away from the fundamental question of who gets to draw the line. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think in saying that he's honoring the fact that the location of the choice that's being made is literally within a woman's body, right? So whether you personally view the fetus as its own body or as part of the woman's body, the fact remains that it is inside a woman's body and the woman is the one whose life is impacted by that pregnancy. And that reminds me of a quote too that I read in my research that said, I don't remember the exact words, but it said something like society's relationship with the fetus must be mediated by the woman who's carrying the fetus Mm -hmm. in her body. So um, those are some of the, the issues that my class helped me consider, and we'll encounter some of those points in the text. But let's get down to Roe versus Wade itself. Um, Lindsay, can you start us off by reading a quick summary of the case that we found in Encyclopedia Britannica? Sure. Roe versus Wade, or Roe v. Wade, 
legal case in which the U.S. Supreme Court on January 22, 1973 ruled 7-2 to that unduly restrictive state regulation of abortion is unconstitutional. In a majority opinion written by Justice Harry A. Blackman, the court held that a set of Texas statutes criminalizing abortion in most instances violated a woman's constitutional right of privacy, which it found to be implicit in the liberty guarantee of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which states, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the process of law. So that's one key fact that it's important to know. In determining whether abortion rights were protected by the Constitution, the Supreme Court justices determined that the Privacy Clause of the 14th Amendment covered women's rights to make this very intimate decision with her own doctor, and then it would violate her privacy for the government to intervene. Okay, that's great. That's a great summary. Okay, so now we'll actually get into the text. I'm going to start by reading just a little bit of the opening paragraph, because I think it really sets the tone of how these judges were thinking about the issue. Quote, we forthwith acknowledge our awareness of the sensitive and emotional nature of the abortion controversy, of the vigorous opposing views, even among physicians, and of the deep and seemingly absolute convictions that the subject inspires. One's philosophy, one's experiences, one's exposure to the raw edges of human existence, one's religious training, one's attitude toward life and family and their values and the moral standards one establishes and seeks to observe are all likely to influence and to color one's thinking and conclusions about abortion. In addition, population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones tend to complicate and not to simplify the problem. Our task, of course, is to resolve the issue by constitutional measurement, free of emotion and of predilection. We seek earnestly to do this, and because we do, we have inquired into, and in this opinion, place some emphasis upon medical and medical legal history and what that history reveals about man's attitudes toward the abortion procedure over the centuries, end quote. So I really appreciate the balance of this introduction. On one hand, acknowledging the emotional and spiritual aspects of this topic. This was, I was just really surprised as I started to read this. Were you, Lindsay? Mm-hmm. It was so much more personal than I expected. I found it actually quite endearing. Yeah, me too. Um, To the judges, I felt endeared because they were looking at it and seeing that this is this huge issue that people really feel deeply about. But then when they say our task is to resolve this free of emotion, I thought that's such a a huge task. And I, I guess I just felt a deep honor for what they were doing and what they're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and I love that um, they remind us that their job is to uphold the U.S. Constitution, right? So they can't be swayed by emotion or religion because of separation of church and state, although they're recognizing that religion factors into it. So how hard that would be to try to make that deliberation. So hard. So hard. Okay, so the next part introduces Jane Rowe, who Lindsay just talked about, but I'll read just a tiny bit of the text in order to set it up. It says, quote, Jane Rowe, a single woman who was residing in Dallas County, Texas, instituted this federal action in March 1970 against the district attorney of the county, 
Henry Wade in Dallas County, Texas. So that's where you get the Roe versus Wade. She sought a declaratory judgment that the Texas criminal abortion statutes were unconstitutional on their face and an injunction restraining the defendant, Henry Wade, from enforcing the statutes. Roe alleged that she was unmarried and pregnant, that she wished to terminate her pregnancy by an abortion performed by a competent, licensed physician under safe clinical conditions, that she was unable to get a legal abortion in Texas because her life did not appear to be threatened by the the continuation of her pregnancy, and that she could not afford to travel to another jurisdiction in order to secure a legal abortion under safe conditions. She claimed that the Texas statutes were unconstitutionally vague and that they abridged her right of personal privacy protected by the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. By an amendment to her complaint, Roe purported to sue on behalf of herself and all other women similarly situated. I really appreciated how the case states that it's on behalf of all other women. Something I learned in reading the case was that there was actually another plaintiff who filed a case alongside Jane Roe. Um, it was Jane Roe and a married and childless couple known as John and Mary Doe. Um, I'm going to quote here. Mrs. Doe was suffering from a neural chemical disorder that her physician had advised her to avoid pregnancy until such time as her condition has materially improved although a pregnancy at the present time would not present a serious risk to her life. That pursuant to medical advice, she had discontinued use of birth control pills, and that if she should become pregnant, she would want to terminate the pregnancy by an abortion performed by a competent, licensed physician under safe clinical conditions. End quote. So we have Jane Rowe, pregnant with her third child. Um, her first was being raised by her mother, the second had been placed for adoption, and now she's pregnant with her third and wishing to have an abortion. And we have a doctor who has been convicted of performing ab abortions, and joining the team is now this childless couple who's been medically advised to avoid or abort any pregnancies, and they are all joining in the attack on the abortion statutes. The Doe's case was dismissed because their abortion argument was considered hypothetical. The woman was not pregnant. Um, but interestingly enough, Jane Rowe was also not pregnant by the time that this case was um, ruled on. She said she found out about the ruling just by reading the newspaper and her child was like two years old and had been adopted already. Oh, my gosh. So I think excluding the does because they were not pregnant, I understand why that happened. But I wish that that hadn't happened because I think that this issue of abortion and childbirth and um when life begins, this affects everyone, particularly all women. We all need to buy into this discussion. Really, the questions and issues can affect anyone with a uterus. Yeah. Um, and anyone that loves someone with a uterus. How about that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I wish they hadn't dismissed the does. Yeah, that's such an important point. That's a great point. And like you, I thought that was really interesting and had no idea that there were multiple people that were filing the complaint in the case. That, mm -hmm. that was really interesting. And like you said, all in kind of different circumstances. And I will speak to this later, but I think in this circumstance with Mrs. Doe, she is married, unable to take birth control. Mm -hmm. And although she's not pregnant now, her doctor is telling her, if you get pregnant, you need to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And she lives in an area where she can't have an abortion. Yeah. So I just think, what is she to do? Right. 
And I think that's the question I, I ask myself through this whole thing is, what are these women to do? Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so then the next portion of the document is a really long description of how people have viewed abortion throughout history. And we won't read even close to all of it. We're just going to choose some highlights. But Justice Blackman sets it up by saying, quote, we feel it desirable briefly to survey in several aspects the history of, of abortion for such insight as that history may afford us, and then to examine the state purposes and interests behind the criminal abortion laws, end quote. Okay, so let's just dive in and start um, kind of touching on a few different points on this historical timeline um, as they're presented in Roe versus Wade. The first one is this, quote, it perhaps is not generally appreciated that the restrictive criminal abortion laws in effect in a majority of states today are of rel relatively recent vintage. Those laws generally prescribing abortion or its attempt at any time during pregnancy. Okay, sorry, I have to say this. The word is proscribing. And when I said it, it sounded like prescribing. So like wanting you to have an abortion and it, mm. it means prohibiting. So I'll read it with the word prescribing, but just know that's proscribing, which means prohibiting. Those laws generally proscribing abortion or its attempt at any time during pregnancy, except when necessary to preserve the pregnant woman's life, are not of ancient or even of common law origin. And this is Amy again interjecting. <laughs> um, just as a reminder, common law refers to the body of English law that was adopted by the United States when the United States was new. And it was kind of, and common law also just means like things that are in practice that might not necessarily be officially law, but the United States inherited a lot of that common law from England. Okay, back to Justice Blackman now. He, he finishes by saying, instead, these Abortion laws derive from statutory changes affected for the most part in the latter half of the 19th century, end quote. So basically, they're establishing that the current attitudes toward abortion are relatively recent. And so then they say, OK, well, if this is recent, then what have other people done in the past? And they go way, way back to try to learn from the way other people at other times have approached the issue. So they start with ancient attitudes. Um, and they they say, yeah, we know this is we're, this is not capable of precise determination. But quote, we are told that at the time of the Persian Empire, abortifacients were known, and that criminal abortions were severely punished. End quote. And I remember that from our episode on the creation uh, on the creation of patriarchy, um, Middle Assyrian law described that women were essentially owned by men and they were viewed as baby factories. So destroying a potential baby was seen as a destruction of the man's property. And so women were severely punished for having an abortion, but that was because she was destroying the man's property, not really out of concern for the baby or concern for her health, but because that was not hers to make any decisions about it belonged to the man. So uh, the next quote is, he says, quote, we are also told, however, that abortion was practiced in Greek times as well as in the Roman era, and that it was resorted to without scruple. If abortion was prosecuted in some places, it seems to have been based on a concept of a violation of the father's right to his offspring, which is, again, what we just talked about with the um, ancient Assyrians. 
Um, and then he comments, ancient religion did not bar abortion, end quote. Okay, and then because we're in ancient Greece, he goes on to reference the Hippocratic Oath. So I'll turn that one over to you, the um, medical expert in the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yes, the Hippocratic Oath. Um, that oath was written, like you said, during a time when abortion was actually widely accepted. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. um, the Roe versus Wade text states, most Greek thinkers commended abortion, at least prior to viability. For the Pythagoreans, however, it was a matter of dogma. For them, the embryo was animate from the moment of conception, and abortion meant destruction of a living being. The abortion clause of the oath, therefore, echoes Pythagorean doctrines, and in no other stratum of Greek opinions were such views held or proposed in the same spirit of uncompromising austerity. So even in ancient Greece, we see people grappling with the question of when is it acceptable to allow abortion? It seems as though most people do accept that abortion is okay, except these Pythagoreans, and they say, not at all. The, mm -hmm. the life begins at conception. Um, it was in, a set, in that setting that Hippocrates created his historic oath for physicians, which stated, quote, I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody if asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give to a woman an abortive remedy, end quote. Most people don't know the oath included this phrase about not performing abortions. We are more familiar with the phrase, first do no harm. Yeah, exactly. That's the only part I knew of the Hippocratic Oath. Me too. So I th that was so, I'm actually really glad you just explained it because that answered my question. When I was reading, I was like, wait a second. They say that the Greeks... Um, were comfortable with abortions. It happened all the time, but then it wasn't allowed. But yeah, and you just explained it really well. So the Pythagoreans said, no, never, because life begins at conception, but everybody practiced it anyway, which actually sounds really similar to what we're still debating and encountering in our age too, right? That's what happens now. Definitely. And then of course, you and I have talked about this, that the the phrase do no harm has to be applied to the woman as well, right? And then what is harm? And and I have to point out too, we, we talked about this before, but we, we know how the Greeks viewed women, right? And so they viewed women as a, a misbegotten man, according to Aristotle. And so to me, again, all of these men opining about um, it, a women's issue just reminds me again that in many ways, this is a patriarchy issue. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Yes, of course, because we're, if we take a look at who's uh, making these oaths, Hippocrates was a man, mm -hmm. um, and all of the oaths and the laws in ancient Roman Greece were being made by men. Mm -hmm. And it's so frustrating that women are not the authorities on their own bodies. Um, of course, this patriarchy lasted beyond the days of ancient Greece, the justices ruling on Roe v. Wade continued their review of the history by visiting the more recent past. So they noted, quote, it is undisputed that at common law, abortion performed before quickening, the first recognizable movement of the fetus in utero, appearing usually from the 16th to the 18th week of pregnancy, was not an indictable offense. So there they're just saying in common law, um, you there was no problem really with having an abortion before 16 to 18 weeks. So here you see lawmakers are trying to figure out when a fetus becomes a living human soul. And for some time, the accepted point was when it began to move. 
Now, just for fun, I want to include this little finding from our reading of Roe v. Wade. Quote, Although Christian theology and the canon law came to fix the point of animation at 40 days for a male and 80 days for a female, a view that persisted until the 19th century, there was otherwise little agreement about the precise time of formation or animation. Oh, gosh. Don't you just love that a little bit? No. By love, I say hate, okay? Because what is that? A man is formed at 40 days, so... You can't abort a baby boy after 40 days, but you can abort a baby girl right. all the way up till 80 days. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just ridiculous. And it's kind of like, hello, men that are in charge. Right. Hello, patriarchy. Um, and it does come from the Greeks, right? That the girls were inferior starting from in utero, that it comes from ancient misogyny. Yes. And that's just crazy that it persisted all the way into the 19th century and that they had that assumption that they were carrying into the medical scientific field that they brought it with them from just these old yeah assumptions about the gender the genders it's crazy yeah that boys were fully formed and acceptable yes you know at half the time of what a girl was acceptable and it's really weird to me too because <laughs> i remember learning in anatomy and physiology that in fetal development, testes descend at about eight weeks. Mm. And so up until that eight week period, all fetuses look female, really. That's the mm. X chromosome that's directing things until eight weeks. And that's when the Y chromosome starts acting. So if anything, they had it backwards, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, boys and girls right. are equal. Yes. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's yeah. just stupid. Equally valuable, but that's such a great point that like the testes descend and then it becomes a boy so it becomes well i mean it's already a male but you can't tell that you see it as a male later yeah so yeah you're right they're backwards it's just ridiculous oh brother luckily there was no empirical basis for this 40 days or 80 days view so i quote again there was agreement that prior to quickening the fetus was to be regarded as part of the mother and its destruction, therefore, was not homicide. Whether abortion of a quick fetus, or a moving fetus, was a felony at common law, or even a lesser crime, is still disputed. End quote. Moving forward, we come to the year of 1803, when England developed its first criminal abortion statute, which made early abortion a crime, but abortion after quickening a capital crime. Oh my gosh. A capital crime. Yes. Yep. Wow. You could you could suffer the death penalty if you had an abortion after quickening. Oh, my. Um, this is a point in history where the law really doubles down. And if you end a pregnancy, you're ending a potential life. And that's basically murder. I have to say, I last time I was at work and I was caring for a little baby, I was giving it a bath. And I did think, this is a living soul. And mm-hmm. so I, I have compassion for mm-hmm. the people that are extending such strict and harsh penalties only because yeah. it's driven by this desire to protect life. Yeah. I don't, I don't think capital punishment is, is appropriate here, but it, this is what we're just reviewing history. This yeah. is what was happening in 1803. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because it is important to remember. That's why this is so hard because anybody 
who's held a newborn can see that. And it is tender and it is difficult. Thanks for sharing that. I'm glad you did. It is a life. Um, I will add this quote. Um, and this is again about the English abortion statute. Quote, it contained a proviso that one was not to be found guilty of the offense unless it is proved that the act which caused the death of the child was not done in good faith for the purpose only of preserving the life of the mother. Hmm. End quote. So we're, we're accepting and the fact that there might be cases where you would need to do an abortion late in pregnancy if it was going to save the life of the mother. Hmm. This still comes into discussion, you know, with my friends when we talk about abortion. It's it's usually pretty accepted that if the mom's going to die, mm-hmm. that's a different situation. But I do find that kind of frustrating mm-hmm. because I need more information about it, what, what it means to preserve the life of the mother. Um, what if this woman is pregnant and we find that she has um, a severe clotting disorder Mm. and we think having this baby isn't going to kill you but you could have a stroke that will leave you completely debilitated or what if we see oh my word you are developing incredible postpartum depression and psychosis to the point of when you have this baby we're afraid you're going to commit suicide or kill your child I think there are other circumstances that are very debilitating that don't cost the woman their life, but really need to be weighed still. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm kind of imagining at this point, again, all of these lawmakers are men Mm -hmm. and all of these physicians are usually men weighing in on, well, how much can we let the woman suffer before we say, okay, oh, that might kill her because she can't end the pregnancy if it's going to kill her. Well, okay, how close can she get to death? I don't know. I, it just feels very uncomfortable to me to only say you will, will give you this option if your life is going to end mm-hmm. at that moment in late in labor and delivery. Right. Correct. Like you point out there could be um, complications that end her life later. Yes. Yeah. And we also speak in medical in the medical field. We talk about um, a degree of risk involved. And sometimes you don't know what's going to happen. Is someone going to die? Are they not going to die? I just think this opens up a loophole where people could um, restrict a woman's options based on what they think. Mm-hmm. And because the they here is men, again, this is a this is a problem. Mm. The woman herself needs to be able to chime in and she needs to have women also in the mix of who's deciding what she can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so I am happy to share with you the following quote as a follow-up from Roe v. Wade again. Quote, recently, Parliament enacted a new abortion law. This is the Abortion Act of 1967. The act permits a licensed physician to perform an abortion where two other licensed physicians agree, A, that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve risk to the life of the pregnant woman, or of injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman or any existing children of her family greater than if the pregnancy were terminated. Or B, that there is a substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped. 
The Act also provides that in making this determination, account may be taken of the pregnant woman's actual or reasonably foreseeable environment. It also permits a physician, without the concurrence of others, to terminate a pregnancy where he is of the good faith opinion that the abortion is immediately necessary to save the life or to prevent grave permanent injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman. End quote. I really love that mm. because it takes into consideration the mental health of the pregnant woman, the risk of life. We're talking about risk rather than the absolute of we know this is going to kill the woman. Mm -hmm. um, and also just giving the physician the ability to act with good faith in the interest of his patients or her, I'm sorry, I said his, isn't that interesting? No, but they, that's because you said it, because that's what was in the text. It is a his. Yeah. They, okay. anytime they talk about a doctor, they say he and his. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Person. In the, in the quote to terminate a pregnancy where he is of the good faith opinion. Yeah. No, you okay. got that from Roe v. Wade. And that was just, they didn't even notice mm -hmm. the assumption that all the doctors and all the judges and all the lawmakers were all male because they were, and they were. Right. Keep going, though. Yeah. But to, just to speak to that, I think there are so many doctors that really want to do it. Perhaps all really. I don't know. But mm -hmm. so many doctors want to do what is in the best interest of their patient yeah. and, the, and the baby they're carrying. And um, I just hate when doctors hands are tied when they are the ones that are with the patient and know what's going on. Yes. I just think the law needs to take a back seat sometimes. Yes, as you were talking about like all of these different circumstances and what might happen in the labor and what her mental state might and her emotional state might be afterwards. I mean, who who does know? Who has the best idea of how that's going to impact her? She does. Mm -hmm. And who's the second best person who will know? Her doctor, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And then maybe her mom. Like, like you said, like more women in the room, mm -hmm. but it's definitely not some lawmaker somewhere who's never met her and doesn't know her medical history or her emotional state, the circumstances of her pregnancy. We'll, I mean, we'll keep hitting on this all the way through the document, but um, thanks for reading that. I, I also just um, really noticed that that's like, oh yes, here it is. Her mental state is taken into consideration. Um, I have to say, I've really been impacted by watching BBC's Call the Midwife. You know mm. this because we talk about it all the time. I love that show. Yeah, it's such a great show. To listeners who are interested, I would really recommend um, two episodes that deal with abortion. One is in season two, episode five, and another one is in season five, episode three. Um, there are more than that that are just, well, I would watch the whole, the whole thing every season. It's so fantastic. But those two specifically really helped me see women's situations differently. And so I recommend that. Also, I was really impacted. I, I was thinking about a couple of the things. One was that I, well, women feel so much shame if they have abortions that I think people don't talk about it. And when would it come up really? I mean, unless it's in your family, but in my class there, I had a friend in class who knew I was doing this project on abortion. And I was like, you know, posting on my blog and making comments in class and stuff. And I hadn't even realized that I assumed that no one in that room had had an abortion. I mean, I just didn't really think about it. And she very, very tenderly 
so kindly. She could have been very rude to me and she was not. But she shared at the end of one class period, the story about how she herself had had an abortion. Mm. And I was dumbstruck. (laughs) And of course, in my mind, like going back through everything I had said and everything I had written and like, oh no, oh no, oh no. Did I say something that would have been offensive to her that was insensitive to her? Probably I did, (laughs) not meaning to. Sure. And, um, but she was so kind to me about it. And we both hugged and cried after the class was over, but that impacted me too. Cause she talked about the circumstances of her life. Her mom had had her when she was 16 and she had a really, really rough life with like, um, her mother was not ready to be a mother. And she found, and, and this friend of mine had been using birth control and found her and she was the first college student in her family. And she had gotten into college. She was using birth control and she found herself pregnant. And she's just like, I cannot, I cannot have this baby. I can't even have a pregnancy. It would derail everything anyway. I don't need to go into all the details, but wow, when I knew somebody mm-hmm. and she was my dear friend and I saw how she was at Stanford and having this incredible life and just thinking, what if she had been an 18 year old mother instead? Um, anyway, that impacted me a lot. I'm glad you bring that up. Those personal stories are what really bring it bring it to reality for yes. us. We yep. can get caught up in the in the principles and the values of life and choice. Mm-hmm. But then when you meet someone mm-hmm. that actually has experienced this heart-wrenching decision, yeah. Uh it becomes a lot more real. Yeah, it's different. It is different. It's not theoretical anymore. Mm-hmm. Um on, on that topic, I'll share one example from an article and this is actually the last thing I'll share on today's episode for part 1 and we'll resume with part 2 afterwards, but we'll also share other other um personal stories of women, but I want to share this one. Um this one I encountered in an NPR story on a woman in Pakistan named Menaz. Menaz was married at 13 years old to her cousin in their tiny village, and she had four daughters in quick succession as a teenager. Um, The article says, when at 19, Menaz became pregnant again, she panicked. She already had four daughters, and her husband was threatening to throw her out if she had another girl. Before she had gotten pregnant, she had pleaded with her doctors to sterilize her. And she says they told her that she had to wait until she was 40 or get a permission slip from her husband. And he refused. He said, quote, well, she said, quote, he says he can't sign this. It's a sin. She says he also refuses to use condoms or to stop having sex with her. And she says if she has another girl, her husband will abandon her. So, I mean, just all of these anecdotes, right, that illustrate the different situations, the vastly different situations that women actually find themselves in. This woman found herself pregnant again and was so desperate to not be pregnant and not risk having another girl where then she would be abandoned as a teenager with five daughters. daughters. Um, She was desperate to end that pregnancy. So what she did was... She drank poison. She lifted as much heavy furniture as she could. She, yeah, she went to a local practitioner who gave her, I think it was some 
some um, traditional remedy, and it did end up aborting the pregnancy. And she was so grateful for that. But then she asked her doctors to sterilize her again, and they wouldn't. And she ended up pregnant. And I think she had like three or four more children that she couldn't support. Anyway, the point of this, this is representative of so many women all around the world. So we're going to wrap up there for today, and we'll resume with more on our next episode. There's so much more to talk about, and we're only covering a fraction. So join us next time for part two of Roe versus Wade next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.